You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. So, let me ask you a question. Think about the answer. What is wisdom? What is, it, what is wisdom? What does it mean to be wise? Well, as one famous philosopher said, maybe it's wishing that you didn't know now what you didn't know then. In case you didn't know, that's, uh, I have a quote up slide for you. That's uh, Toby Keith, in case you didn't know. I, I think I have a, the slide for you. Yeah, right there. There's Toby Keith, the famous philosopher. That's a joke in case you don't know what country music is. Another might have said it's knowing that you don't know nothing. Knowing that you know nothing, that's Socrates, a real philosopher, a real dead philosopher. But I think the reality is when we start asking this question of what does it mean to be wise, what does it mean to have wisdom, it's a, it's a much larger question than just looking at other dead guys or other artists. I think we need to go back to what would it mean to make the wisest choice ever? Like if, if all things boil down to one question, I think answering that question correctly would provide wisdom. So what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be diving into the idea of what does the Bible say about wisdom. So we've been in this series, we started a couple weeks ago, called Binge Reading the Bible. And what we've done is we've broken the Bible into seven different sections. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that the Bible is about 66 books. And those 66 books represent different types of literature. So you have the histories, or we might call it the, the, uh, the book of the law, the Pentateuch. Then you have the, uh, uh, yeah, I just blanked it right there, right? You have the book of the law, you have the histories, you have the wisdom, the poetry, you have the gospels, you have the prophets, you have the epistles, you have the apocalyptic. So you have seven different types of literature that go into these 66 books. And it's important to recognize and understand the different words that are written in them and how to read them and how to kind of understand them because reading a history is very different than reading a poem. Reading a poem is very different than reading a foretelling of the apocalypse times. And so what we need to do is we need to break down and kind of understand what it means. And so we're in week three, and so we're looking at the wisdom literature. So that's Ecclesiastes, that's Job, that's Psalms, that's Proverbs, and that's the Song of Solomon. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3 today. If you don't have one, we have one down there front for you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you that one. You're welcome to take it with you. But what we're going to see as we dive into specifically Proverbs 3, but really kind of look at a, a, a broad approach of all five of those different types of wisdom literature, as, or as they're otherwise known as poetry, is we're going to see that God reveals His wisdom to, hum- to humanity through a variety of creative forms. So we can make decisions in a way that pleases Him. If you think about the story of Job, when you turn through the pages of his story and his life, what you'll see is a man who experienced great struggle. He went through massive tragedies in his life. And what you'll find at the end of his book is that he stayed faithful to the Lord. And let's pretend for a second you don't know the story of Job. So here's kind of a quick overview. This man, Job, Scripture says he is a righteous man, followed God well. Well, because he followed God so well, Satan goes to the Lord and says, yeah, of course Job follows you well. 
Because you've given him everything. You've made his life easy. So why don't you let me tempt him? Why don't you let me test him? And then you'll find out, God, that your righteous follower, Job, is not so righteous. And so God allows Job to go under temptation. Furthermore, God allows Job to go through sufferings. He loses most of his money. He loses much of his family. His friends are telling him to denounce the Lord. And there are certainly moments in Job's walk when you can see him ready to break. But through the wisdom of Job, he stays humble and he says, look, the Lord saw me in this. He'll see me at the end of this. And this is Job's story is that it's one where he doesn't try to muster the strength and overcome the tragedies that had come his way. Put yourself in this man's shoes. He was an extremely successful businessman. Think about you in this situation. You have maybe built a little empire for yourself and tragedy comes, loss comes. Many of us, our first temptation would be to do what? To fix it ourself. When a bad business move happens, businessmen and women get in the room and go, how do we fix this now? What moves can we make to ensure that, number one, we don't lose any more capital? Number two, that we gain some? Like, how do we make sure that this doesn't continue to happen? And what you don't see from Job is that. You don't see him go, you know what, I'm going to pull myself up from my bootstraps. What you see from Job is a man who understands Who's in control? And so, instead of Job trying to use his wise intellect, so to speak, he uses the wisdom of God and says, God, I'm going to run to you. Because I believe that you're in control. I don't believe that you just gave me skills so that I can do all things on my own. No, rather, I believe that you are in control of all things. And so Job runs to God. Today, we're in this series, and we're kind of doing it at the movie style. And so if you were here right at the beginning, you saw a little trailer for Despicable Me. And this next scene that we're going to watch grew the, the, the kind of hero of the story, sort of, has been given these three daughters. He doesn't know they're his daughters yet, but they will be soon to come. Spoiler alert, in case you hadn't seen it. And they are stolen from him at a point in this movie. And so what Gru goes to do is he goes to take them back to rescue them. Watch this next clip. In so many ways, this scene between Gru rescuing his soon-to-be daughters depicts our perspective of the relationship with God. Ask yourself if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you've questioned God's intent for your life. Maybe tragedy struck, maybe hard times came, and you found yourself like those daughters on the plane, and you felt abandoned. And so you questioned God. You questioned His character. You said, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you put me in this situation? And yet, oftentimes, you then go to church, and then a pastor saying, hey, turn back to God, and you are fighting the battle wounds that you feel of like, hold on, God left me, why do I need to come back to God? 
And the reality is God never left you. You felt so. Maybe you were being spiritually oppressed by the enemy. Maybe you had a poor perspective of what was going on, but the Lord never left. And so how do we fight back some of these feelings of abandonment? How do we fight back as Job fought back in the middle of tragedy? We go back to the intent of those wisdom literature letters. God reveals His wisdom to humanity through a variety of creative forms so that we can make decisions in a way that pleases Him. Here's how we fight back when we feel abandoned, when we feel like we've been wronged. We look to Jesus. So, in my opinion, I believe all of Scripture points to one wise decision. Just one. Putting your faith in the Lord. Think about it like this. I, I was talking to a group of high schoolers about seven years ago. And we were talking about sharing our faith. And one of them brought up this neighbor that they had. And they, they cut this, this lady's grass pretty much every week during the summer. And they did it for free. And so we were talking about showing the love of God in our communities and to people. And, and this young man said, hey, so I, I show the love of Jesus to my neighbor." Every week I cut her grass. I don't charge her a dollar. I, I, I go over and I have a glass of lemonade with her and I sit with her and I let her talk and I, I kind of entertain her and, you know, and kind of just and meet with her. I, I'm showing her Jesus. And I said, okay, all right. That's cool. I think that's a great thing, man. Like, fantastic. Do you know if she has a relationship with God? Like, does she believe in Jesus? No, I, it doesn't really come up much. I said, okay. So it doesn't come up much. So you're, you're over there speaking with her. She's an elderly lady. She's alone. Have you, have you ever talked about your faith with her? Have you ever kind of shared what God's done in your life? No, you know, it's never really come up. I said, okay, all right, cool. So you're showing her the love of Jesus by, by performing these, these really admirable actions, like these good things. You're hanging out with her. You're showing her love. You're, you're making her feel valued. You're, you're hanging out with her. You're, you're providing her a service for free. But what have you done for her soul? What have you done to kind of point her to an eternity of rest, of paradise? And he looked back at me and he said, I'm cutting her grass. And I said, you're missing it. We can do all of the nice things in the world and help people, and we can love people in the name of Jesus. But if we don't ever explicitly tell them about Jesus, we have loved them straight to hell. Because they don't know. We assume because we're in the Bible Belt, the South, that they know. Well, you've heard story after story, hopefully, if you've been to this church any time, of people who did not know Jesus but were raised in the South. Several years ago, I'm reminded of a guy because Ben Murray, one of our previous staff members, is here. I'm reminded of a guy who was here just four years ago, raised in Atlanta as a Jew, goes to Georgia Southern, had never heard who Jesus was. Raised in Atlanta. Bible Belt, South, never heard the name of Jesus, goes to the campus of Georgia Southern, 
meets a girl who's a, you know, she's a charismatic, you know, big personality. If you've ever been in a room with her, you knew, you know you were in a room with her. She shares with him who Jesus is. They are now married, which his mother loved. He called his, his wife, uh, now wife, a Gentile. And he has put his faith in Jesus. She could have loved him. She could have brought, brought him to every game and done tailgating parties and all of the things. But if she never took him to the throne and said, here's who Jesus is, what wisdom would be in that love? There'd be none. There'd be no wisdom in that. Because you loved the person while they were here, but you loved them straight to hell. And so I, I believe the Scripture points us over and over and over again to understanding that the wisest decision, the decision that will impact every other decision and will bring you closer to understanding what wisdom is, is to knowing Jesus. Let's dive into Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll kind of unpack what Solomon says about understanding and knowing our Lord. Beginning in verse 1, it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Rather, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His Reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son, in him whom he delights. So, Solomon is writing this book, and he opens this chapter by writing a proverb to his child, specifically to his son. I want you to think about the impact that a letter like that would have on your own heart. As you were to sit down and at this point, you are understanding that God has given you a gift of wisdom. Scripture says that Solomon is the wisest person that has ever lived. And so Solomon feels this immense pressure to go, I want to write some words to my son. I want to give my child an amazing gift. So feel that passion, that pressure, that righteous burden, and then understand that Solomon is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are not merely words from a man and a pen. These are the words of God spoken through Solomon. Not only to his son, but to you and to me. And the same words that he writes nearly 27 years later 2,700 years later, I should say, stand true. So he makes a very fatherly statement basically throughout this whole text. He says, let your yes be 
your yes. Solomon is telling every one of us and his son to be truthful, to be honorable, and to be long-suffering while following God. So how do we do that? How, how, how can we take the wisdom and heed his warnings and implement the strategies in his life? Well, the first thing that Solomon tells him to do, he, he says, hey, if you do these things, then, then good things will come and, and let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good success in the, in, in the sight of God and man. He kind of puts this opening like, hey, here's the good thing that's coming. If, he says, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And I, I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm reading through Scripture and I, I'll come across a, a, a powerful truth like this. Trust in the Lord. And I'll go, yeah, God, I can trust if I can see. I, I could trust in this situation if you would just kind of show me the way. I, I, I'm not real big on this whole blind faith thing. God, I really need to see kind of the path that you're leading me to. And I think that's where we find struggles. I mean, think about the things in your life that you trust that you can't see. There's not a lot of them. There's probably not a lot of things in your life you say, I completely trust and agree with that statement, although I've seen nothing necessarily tangible from it. And this is a situation that we kind of see in Gru and the daughters jumping from the plane. And he's saying, hey, jump. By the way, we're flying from one plane to the next, and I will catch you. And the daughters are going, yeah, right, you're going to catch me. Like, we're, there's so much distance between us. I've never even seen you catch another living person in the air. You, left, you let us go. You let us go through all this struggle. How can I trust you in this moment? How, how can I do this? We can't always see God's hand in our life. How do we lean into when God says, trust Him? Billy Graham famous pastor and evangelist said it like this. He says, can you see God? You haven't seen Him. I've never really seen the wind. But I've seen the effects of the wind. Now, I've never seen the wind, but I've seen the effects of the wind. There's a mystery to it. When God calls us to trust in Him, He isn't saying do it by blind faith. He has brought messengers before him, and he's brought the ultimate messenger through his son Jesus. Colossians 1.15, Paul is writing to a church in the middle of kind of a Greek think world, and they are very much kind of unpacking the quote-unquote truths of reality and how we exist and why we exist and why things function, and God is trying to get them to understand through Paul who Jesus is. And so Paul says this in Colossians 1.15, it says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul is laying out for the Colossians and for me and you today that Jesus and the Gospel is our tangible expression of God. If you want to see God, look towards Jesus and the Gospel. Even still, you go, eh, yeah, I hear you, Chris. 
I got this family member that they're going, man, I can't really see God, so how do I, how do I get them to understand that true wisdom is to trust in God? And how do I understand trusting in God means you've got to trust in some being, so to speak, that you can't actually see. Sure, you can see some effects, and there's some really cool quotes you can talk about, some really good dead guys that were really smart. And, and then Paul you know, kind of points us back to this idea that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, but how do I grapple with that? How do I wrestle with that? My personal self and maybe my friends, and I would go, you need to first accept that there's going to be some that will never believe it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel will mean nothing to some. It won't be a tangible expression. They'll say there's errors. All these 66 books can't communicate with each other. There's contradictions through translation. There's, there's all kinds of messed up things. Jesus was a good person, but he's not son of God. I don't know if there was a God. They'll say these things. And you could leave those conversations and leave those moments, and you might be sitting in that moment going, I don't know if I can believe the word of God. I don't know if I can trust in this thing that I cannot see. You need to understand that God has not hidden Himself from man. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So when He says, For the wrath of God has been revealed, what He's talking about is so God creates the world perfectly. And then mankind falls. And because of that, that fallen nature, because of sin, we inherit death both physically and spiritually. And because of that separation from God's holiness and death comes in, God, being a perfect being, says, I, I, I can't have that stuff with me. I can't have that stuff near me. And so what needs to happen is justice needs to happen. That's why death comes in. And so when it says the wrath of God is being revealed, what he's saying is that the reality of your situation is revealed to everyone. We know that there's brokenness. We know that there's fallenness in this world. And it goes on in 19. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. This is like all people. For His invisible attributes. So it's plain to them, but there's invisible attributes. Namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. So these invisible attributes have been shown and they have been clearly perceived ever since, continue on in verse 20, the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Some do not trust God. Some do not believe in God because they cannot trust the Gospel. They cannot trust the Gospel because their hearts have been hardened by their own doings. And they look inward for resolutions. Now, put on your thinking cap. You're a finite being. I think everyone can agree with that. There's probably not many people in the world that would say humans aren't finite. One in one dies, right? Finite, not infinite in the sense of how we live. 
our lives. We don't have a whole lot of control over the world. So, if a finite being is trying to give you infinite resolutions, they can never do it. So why do we do it? Romans 1, they were looking inward for resolution. They were trying to find an infinite answer to an infinite problem in a finite being. They've missed the wisdom in understanding that you need to look to God who is the infinite, who can answer every finite question you have as well as every infinite question that you have. And hopefully I, I didn't just lose you with all of that play on words right there. But what you need to know is that humans are not that smart. God is. So why do humans think they can outsmart God? That is the basis of Romans 1. You're not God. You're not smarter than God. Stop trying to act like Him. Look towards God for all of the answers. So you go back. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So, those who have, through their unrighteousness, suppressed the truth and said, I'm not going to believe in God because I believe in something else. Romans 1 goes on to say that they created their own little gods. They created carved images. You can see this throughout Scripture. and That's, in many ways, why we have a plethora of quote-unquote religions in the world. And you go to talk to somebody in a coffee shop, and they're like, hey, I can't believe in your God because there's a million other gods out there. And you go, yeah, because the sinful heart created something to replace the infinite God. And so the finite is trying to find something that's infinite by not looking at the reality of who in, is infinite, but by creating something else finite. And, and so it's, it's mind-blowing, but we know through 1 Corinthians 1.18 that it's going to happen. So we need to understand that there will be some, as heartbreaking as it is, that will not accept the truth. He goes on, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You may read that going, okay, hold on. So the gospel is the power of God to those who are being saved. What is it to those who are not? Is it still powerful? Is it still substantive? Does it, does it still do anything? Yes. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. It's his death, burial, and resurrection. It is the lifted curse of sin and death through the sacrifice of God himself. And Paul is saying that the gospel is foolish to those who don't accept it. But that does not nullify its power. Let's go to that famous verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to send people to hell. Right there. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. For those who do not believe the Gospel is effective, it will not be effective for them. Think about it like this. I give you a gift card for 50 bucks to a restaurant downtown. And I say, hey, here it is. Take your spouse, take your girlfriend, your boyfriend, best friend, your dog on a date. 
right? Go downtown, grab yourself a burger, some fries, get an appetizer too. Make it a night of it. Do it. Here's 50 bucks. And you're going, that's not enough money. But anyway, <laughs> I give you a, a gift card that's worth it. It's got all of it there. You get ready. You start looking all pretty. You go downtown. You order your meal. You eat it. The bill comes. And you start looking for the gift card. You go, oh, I don't, I don't have the gift card. And you start looking for your wallet. because now, now you're frantic. You're, you're freaking out. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I have my wallet. And you, you find your wallet finally. And you open it up or your purse. And you open it up. And, and there's nothing in there. you got no way of paying it. You can't pay for the bill that's just been put in front of you. Tell me, would the gift card cover the bill? This is interactive. Yes, it would. But did you take the gift card with you? Did you accept the gift card and say, this is how I'm paying? No, you did not. But what if you did? What if you said, look, I'm going to take this gift card. I'm going to take it with me to the restaurant, and then I'm going to give it to the waiter or waitress at the end of the night, and it's going to cover the bill, and I'm going to be good. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. You can say no to it. It's still effective. You just didn't take advantage of its effectiveness. And so we need to understand that the wisdom that Solomon is trying to get people to understand and get his son most importantly to understand is that God is the only thing that's worth trusting in. There's a lot of things that come in this world that are shiny, and you can try to put your hope and your faith and your trust in those things, but above all things, Solomon says, trust in the Lord. No matter where you are, even when you can't see Him working, He's working. Trust in God. And sometimes that takes a a huge heart to understand that there are others around us that will not do it and it will break our hearts. Don't let it break your faith. God has given them away. And he said, pick up the gift card. Pick it up. But you have to take it to them, right? Romans 10 says, how are they to respond to the gospel if it's never been preached? And how are they to preach if they've never been sent? And how are they to be sent if they never received it? And so you and I come to church and we sit in chairs and we go, oh, we love Jesus. He's the best. And then we go throughout our lives and we love people, sometimes unintentionally, straight to hell. We need to trust in God with all that we have and then take steps of faith in that trust. Let's not just cut a lady's grass in love and leave it there. Let's cut a lady's grass. Let's have lemonade. Let's fill people's love tanks. Let's do it. And then let's speak it. Let's speak the gospel. Let's live it out. And then he gives us some ways. How do we live this out? Go back to Proverbs 3. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So after you trust in God, in all your ways acknowledge him. So it's not just this one time thing that you walk down an aisle. In all your ways acknowledge him. And everything that you do, acknowledge Jesus. And he will make your straight, he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Know that you don't know everything. Be finite, trust in the infinite, and turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plentiful 
plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is not prosperity gospel. This is God saying when you have wisdom, godly wisdom, good things can come. Now, if you'll follow throughout Scripture, this idea of just giving everything to God first doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be rich here. So don't, don't leave this text and go, wow, pastor said if I, if I tithe and I make sure everything's up and up with God, I'm going to be bankrolling. That ain't true. Okay? That is not what Scripture speaks to. Scripture does speak to if you make wise decisions, wise outcomes can come. And where does wisdom come from? As Solomon is outlining for us, it comes through God. Solomon says, once you trust in the Lord, here are the fruits. Your, straight, your paths will be made straight. You'll have healing between your flesh and, your, and refreshment to your bones. You will honor the Lord with your wealth. You will embrace the Lord's discipline. Solomon lays out for his child the wisest decision that you can make in all of your life is to trust in God. That is the beginning of all of it. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Doesn't that echo the same sentiments that Paul is saying? See, the Gospel is wisdom. And Solomon says in Proverbs, people will reject wisdom. Paul says in his epistle, people will reject the Gospel. You cannot have the Gospel fully ingrained in your heart without wisdom. God will give you wisdom. If you seek, He will give it to you. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For, the, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. These five books point us to understand that God is revealing His wisdom to humanity in many different ways, but the primary way is so that we will trust in God. And then He gives you steps to walk in. You've seen some that go, hey, just, just open up you know, Proverbs every day and that'll you know, do it for you. And I don't necessarily disagree because I believe God can speak through only the book of Proverbs, but I would say if all you ever read was these wisdom literature books, you might be missing a full picture. Because they all point back to the full canon of Scripture. And they're saying these five books, the wisest thing you could do is understand who God is. Know who God is. Repent. Put your faith in Him. And when you do that, these five books will give you some steps. They will give you some ways to follow after God. So church, what will you build your life on? Will you build your life on the finite things? When, when you're trying to understand all of the difficulties in this world, when you're trying to wrap your head around the big questions, and you're trying to gain some wisdom and insight in what's going on, will you try to do it by your own power and by your own strength? Or will you embrace the wisdom of the Lord and take step one and know that everything in this world is fallen and broken? But God sent His Son Jesus to redeem all things. And if you ask in faith, not only will He give you salvation, 
but he will give you wisdom. Let's be a church that loves God, love people, and invest in his kingdom by going to the infinite, not the finite.